Church, it's good to be worshiping with you today. I'm so thankful for all those who have used their gifts to lead us so wonderfully in worship. Tara, thank you for sharing your story with us. We are continuing our sermon series entitled Last Words from the Cross, where we're, we are looking at each of the seven statements that Jesus makes as he is being crucified. And today we're looking at the second statement, and we will be reading from Luke chapter 23, and I'll be reading verses 32 and then 39 through 43. Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray together. Lord, you alone are the word, and you alone have the words of eternal life. Speak, Lord. Speak to us as we are gathered here today, and speak through us as we are scattered in the world this week. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. I spent over 15 years of my adult life separated from God, a stranger to Christ spiritually lost. And from time to time, I think about my old life and I rue those years, all the things I missed while stuck in the quicksand of selfishness, all the hurt I caused and the pain I experienced, blundering around blind to reality and disconnected from Christ. But God is very gracious, and he never allows us to waste any of our experiences, even bad ones. And he has since reminded me that I gained some valuable insights in those years. For example, I know that people who don't follow Christ still think about Christ, and they still talk about Christ. And I know that people who don't trust the Bible still have questions about the Bible. They still talk about the Bible, and I know those things because I was one of those people, and I had those conversations. And oddly enough, this story from Luke, the story that we just read, is one of the stories that in my life, more than a few non-Christians seemed familiar with. Indeed, for some, this story captured their spiritual plan to the extent that they had one, which is to live their life the way they wanted to live it, and then as they approached the end, to come to Christ, to come to the cross, and hopefully hear those welcoming words, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that's not the reading I would recommend for this passage, 
but it does raise profound questions. What is happening at the cross? Who can be saved there? And these aren't simple questions with simple answers because the cross itself is full of contradictions. The cross is a symbol of cruel death and abundant life, a symbol of the horror of human hate and the depths of divine love. It's a symbol of violence that brings peace, of accusation that unleashes forgiveness, of utter defeat that leads to ultimate victory. And these contradictions pile upon one another, and that means cross-examination. It can be hard. So it's appropriate for us to ask, what is happening in this scene? What is Jesus promising? What is the cross all about? Now, to begin with, a superficial reading of this passage might lead us to conclude that through the cross, Jesus saves the good guy, the nice one who's nice to Jesus, and rejects the bad guy, the one who insults Jesus. That's a neat and tidy conclusion that maybe would help us lead a neat and tidy life. But is that what the gospel is really about? And is that what's happening here? Well, Luke describes the two men crucified alongside Jesus with a Greek word that is often translated as criminals, but it literally means those who do evil works. So it's important to recognize that both men were evildoers. Both men are villains. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that both men joined in with the taunting crowd who mocked Jesus by saying such things as, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. Can he save himself? Both of these men rejected and insulted Jesus. Many scholars have observed that these two criminals, as they hang side by side next to Jesus, represent all of sinful humankind, that they represent us. And isn't why, that's why the convicting words are in the hymnal. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Those men are us because it is our sin that held him there. And of course, the book of Romans confirms this reality by reminding us there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good, not even one, not even us. But then something happens. Something changes, which shouldn't be surprising because the cross is where everything changes. And this is something that only Luke's gospel tells us. Luke's camera moves in and gives us a close-up, allowing us to overhear the conversation between Jesus and these two men. And we hear that one of the criminals continues to mock Jesus, demanding that he save himself and them too. But in contrast, seemingly out of the blue, the other criminal comes to a place of repentance. He recognizes his own guilt. 
he sees Jesus' innocence and he begs for mercy. In these two criminals, we see a picture of the two ways that humanity responds to Jesus on the cross. One hardens his heart and remains part of the taunting crowd, and the other repents and becomes part of the confessing church. What happened in the heart of that repentant criminal? Perhaps it was hearing Jesus pray for those who were persecuting him, crucifying him, mocking him. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. After all, that's the power of God's grace, right? It's the promise of pardon that makes space for our confession. It's the gentle rain that softens the hardened heart. It's the open door that invites the wayward home. Hearing that prayer, maybe the prodigal that was hanging on the cross finally was able to see God as he really was, a loving father with open arms. Whatever it was, the remorseful criminal turns to face Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This is such a rich and powerful statement. In his book, Death on a Friday Afternoon, theologian Richard Niehaus points out that in this context, remember is a loaded word. In the Old Testament, when God remembered someone, it meant that God actively took up their cause, delivered them, rescued them. In Genesis 8, God remembered Noah and saved him from the flood. In Genesis 19, God remembered Abraham and spared his nephew Lot from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Exodus 2, God remembered his covenant with Abraham and delivered the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. The repentant man is not just asking Jesus, hey, think about me sometime. He is trusting that Jesus, God, would save him. God beckons all of us to that hill to meet face to face with the crucified Savior, not for punishment, but for pardon, not to shame us, but to save us. And at the cross, we see something that's almost unbelievable, God hanging there with us, suffering with us. And that tells us that we are never alone in our pain. We're never abandoned to getting merely what we deserve for all the evil that we have done and the unbelief that we have lived. And at the, at the cross, we hear the voice of Christ, not calling down condemnation, but interceding for our forgiveness. Because the cross, as it turns out, It's not where good people are affirmed. It's where evildoers are changed. It's where repentant people are rescued and the forgiven find faith. Now after the criminal's dramatic change of heart, Jesus turns to him and gives him this startling promise, you will be with me in paradise. Again, there's more going on here than meets the ear. Paradise is more than a poetic way for Jesus to talk about heaven. It's a robust theological picture 
of the nature of salvation. This word paradise comes from an old Persian word that referred to a walled garden, particularly a royal garden. This term came to be used by the Jewish people in their descriptions of the Garden of Eden, where humans dwelt in joyful, intimate communion with God. And over time, the meaning of the word expanded to also include a future garden, an eschatological garden, a promised paradise like Eden, where the righteous dead dwell with God. And all that's significant because as we remember from Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden because they disobeyed God. And after they were driven out, God placed an angel with a flaming sword to guard the entrance of Eden, barring sinful humans from re-entering paradise. The curse of sin meant paradise was lost to us. So when Jesus promises this man entrance into paradise, he's proclaiming something cosmic. He's saying to the criminal, he's saying to the crowd, he's saying to us, as I die here, I am reversing the curse of Adam and reopening the gates of paradise. The flaming sword that said, keep out, has been replaced by a cross that says, come in. That's what's happening at the cross. In this short passage from Luke, and in this very brief statement from Jesus, we see so much divine mercy for the evildoer, so much divine forgiveness for the foolish, so much divine love for the prodigal. It's staggering, really. And as a person who spent so many years wandering in the wilderness of sin, I am profoundly thankful for the long-suffering patience of God. But part of me wonders, wonders about folks like I was who didn't know Christ but who knew this story. Does this story encourage lost people to continue to wander, to stay out all night in the hopes that they can slide in the door just before it closes at dawn? And for that matter, does this story invite Christians to passively sit by and wait for paradise? In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, the pastor and author Philip Yancey tells the story of his friend Daniel, who invited him out to dinner out of the blue. As they ate, Daniel confided that he had decided to leave his wife after 15 years of marriage. He said he found someone younger and prettier, someone who made him feel alive like he hadn't felt in years. And Yancey listened to Daniel's story with a mixture of sadness and grief. Daniel was a churchgoer, someone who knew well the damage that he would cause leaving his wife and three children. Then during the dessert course, Daniel dropped an even bigger bombshell on Yancey. He said, I have an agenda for calling you here. The reason I wanted to see you tonight was to ask you a question. Do you think God can forgive something as awful as I am about to do? Yancey writes that the question laid on the table between them like a live snake. And he went through several cups of coffee before he dared an answer. In a nutshell, Yancey gave the following response to Daniel. Can God forgive you? 
Of course. But what we have to go through to commit sin distances us from God. We change in the very act of rebellion. You ask me about forgiveness now, but will you even want it later? Especially if it means repentance. Several weeks after that conversation, Daniel made his choice and left his family. And in the aftermath, Daniel rationalized and defended his decision, turning his back on most parts of his former life. And at one point, months later, Yancey ran into Daniel, and Daniel divulged that God is not part of my life right now. Maybe later. Maybe someday. To the Daniels in this world, and the Daniels maybe in your life, and maybe even the Daniel that lives inside of you, Jesus has one more word from the cross. And that word is not someday. That word is today. Throughout his gospel, Luke emphasizes the urgency and the immediacy of the good news of Christ. When Jesus was born, the angel proclaims the news by announcing, Today, a Savior is born. When Jesus launched his public ministry, he quoted Isaiah, proclaiming that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. And then Jesus sat down and said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. When Jesus traveled through Jericho on his way to the cross, he came across the rich tax collector Zacchaeus and told him, I must stay at your house today because Jesus wants to meet with sinners today. As Jesus, as Jesus dined with Zacchaeus and others, he celebrated Zacchaeus' repentance and faith by shouting, salvation has come to this house today. Jesus wants people to experience the joy of new life right now. The cross is the place for sinners to encounter the sin-crushing, death-defeating, life-breathing love of God. For every person like I was, a zombie shuffling through life while spiritually dead, Jesus is inviting, inviting me and others to the cross, to come alive today. For every Daniel who has left God behind to pursue their own desires, Jesus says that they can come to the cross and they can come home today. And the cross, it's not just for unbelievers, it's for the church too. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. As Jesus' people, we never leave the cross behind. There are always unevangelized places in our own hearts and rebellious places in our life that must be brought to Jesus, that must be brought to the cross. And according to Jesus, this must be done daily. It must be done today. The salvation won by Christ at the cross 
Is a future assurance of fellowship with God after death? Absolutely. And it is so much more. At the cross, Christ is throwing open the doors to new life. New life that is a present and available reality now. In Jesus' statement from the cross, we hear what Dr. Martin Luther King described as the fierce urgency of now. As believers, why would we cozy up to our sin for one more day? Why would we accept for one more day anything less than everything Jesus has promised us for ourselves and for others? In Christ, there is power for transformation today. Today is the day to open our eyes and see the kingdom all around us. Today is the day to share the love of God with every Daniel in your life. Today is the day to heed the call of Jesus to bring good news to the poor and freedom to the oppressed. Today is the day to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God. Church, let us come to the cross. Let us pick up our cross for today is the day of salvation. Amen.